Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, we ask that you would send forth your Holy Spirit into this place, that he would do as you promised he would do, which was to convict us of our sin, to point us to the goodness, the greatness, and the majesty of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that he would move us to love and serve him with all that we are. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I often hear many Christians say today that they feel overwhelmed at the prospect of living faithfully as a Christian in our secular day and age. It can be a struggle to know exactly how to follow Jesus in our relativistic world. Well, our passage in Acts that was read first has a lot to offer those who feel this way. As John Stott puts it, Paul found himself in a city dominated by non-Christian ideology, a city that was aesthetically magnificent, culturally sophisticated, but morally decadent, and spiritually deceived and dead. It's an apt description for our own age, isn't it? Many have noted that the uh, Christianity of the 21st century is far similar, more similar to the first century in the Christianity then than any other century in between. And that's because Christianity in the first century was a minority religion in a pluralistic world. Both in the first and the 21st centuries, you'll find a diversity of peoples, a diversity of religions, diversity of ideologies, and of course, a diversity of opinions. So if we want to know how to live faithfully as Christians in our own increasingly secular and relativistic age, then I can think of no more instructive passage for us than Acts 17, where Paul is in Athens. So turn with me to Acts 17, and let's see what we can learn from Paul about how we can live faithfully in our own day. There's so much in this passage. I just want to focus on really just the first three verses, verses 16 through 18. I want us to see three things. First, what Paul felt. Second, what Paul saw. And third, what Paul did. What Paul felt, what he saw, and what he did. So first, what Paul felt. I could talk for hours about the the brilliance of what Paul actually did and what he said I'm actually going to spend the majority of my time this morning focusing on Paul's interior life. And here's why. John Stott, who is a commentator on the book of Acts, who's influenced me the most on this text, he said this. He said, the reason that the church today does not speak as Paul spoke or do what Paul did is because we do not feel as Paul felt. If we can capture what's going on inside the life and mind of Paul, then everything else will mostly take care of itself in terms of living faithfully today. One of the realities I've noticed in ministry is that so often when folks are desperate for some practical wisdom, they get disappointed when they go to the Bible. That's because they're asking questions like, where should I go to school? Or what career path should I take? Or who should I marry? And they don't find any specific answers to these questions in Scripture. Well, the reason is that the Bible doesn't 
so much give us clear answers to these specific scenarios as it does to tell us what kind of specific person that embodies wisdom. On the whole, the Bible tells us what a wise, discerning person looks like. It tells us of the kind of character, the kind of heart of someone who correctly discerns the will of God. It speaks of what it takes to be the kind of person who makes wise, God-honoring decisions in, in many various scenarios. And that's why it's important that we don't just jump to what Paul did. If we want to become more like Paul and his words and his deeds, we need to understand what motivated him. We need to, to try to see the way he saw the world. So first, let's look at what Paul felt. Verse 16 says, Now, when, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Notice Paul's spirit is provoked. The Greek word is paroxuno, from which we get the word paroxysm, meaning a sudden violent seizure or epileptic fit. It means typically to be provoked or irritated to anger. Paul here is feeling strong, thunderous, intense feelings. He's angry. But this isn't the sort of flimsy or sudden or childish anger that you and I so often feel when we simply just don't get our way. In fact, this kind of anger is not even sinful anger because the word here is used most often in the Bible to refer to God himself. It is used mostly to describe how God responds to idolatry. God is angry at idolatry because he is a jealous God. When he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 20, the second commandment is about idols. And God says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Stott is, once again, helpful here because even though most of us often associate jealousy as something bad, it's not always the case. He says jealousy is simply the resentment of rivals. And whether it is good or bad depends on whether that rival has any business being there. He says to be jealous of someone who threatens our, us to outshine us in beauty or brains or our athleticism, that's sinful because we can't claim a monopoly of a talent in those areas. But God's jealousy and Paul's jealousy is not like that at all. They're, they're not some petty thing. Instead, God's jealousy, a, a healthy kind of jealousy, is like the jealousy of a spouse when another threatens the exclusivity of the marriage. It's a good and right thing to have a holy jealousy for one's spouse because that's what marriage is. No third party has any right uh, to one's spouse because marriage is an exclusive relationship. No intruder has any right to be there. And that's what makes the jealousy a good and even a holy thing at times. God's jealousy is that of a husband who doesn't want his beloved in any arms of anybody else. Such a thought produces anger in the heart of Paul, a kind of holy jealousy. In our day, many people wrongly think that it is unloving to have strong, intense feelings like Paul does, feelings of anger. But the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. Parents know this. It would be unloving if you didn't feel anger over something that was wrong. Throughout the Bible, God declares his glory is due to him alone. 
Jesus taught his followers to pray, hallowed be thy name in all the earth. When God is maligned, it is a good and right thing to be provoked like Paul, to have a holy jealousy for God's honor. So Paul is is outraged, first and foremost, because of God. It's for God's sake that he's outraged. But Paul's anger, his, his jealousy also has compassion to it. It's a perfect mixture of both outrage and tears. Paul knows that when human beings look to anything other than God, it will not only lead to eternally dangerous consequences, but it will also not lead to human flourishing here and now. Paul is provoked in his spirit first because of God, but secondly, because of his concern, his compassion for the Athenians. And both are essential if we're going to love God and love our neighbor. I think Tim Keller is is right when he says that about 98% of what Christians say in the public sphere is either obnoxious on the one hand or cowardly. Paul was, was neither. We are usually either one or the other based on our own personal disposition. But if we're going to be faithful followers of Christ in our day, then we need to feel what Paul feels If we're not filled with with indignation when God is dishonored, then we won't actually have the courage to speak up when we need to. If we aren't at the same time filled with compassion for people made in the image of God, then we won't have the gentleness that keeps us from being obnoxious. If we're only one or the other, then we won't live faithfully as Christ's followers today. So let me ask you this morning, do you know something? Do you have something of this holy jealousy for God? this compassion for people that, that Paul had. If you don't, if you maybe want to feel more of it, then I encourage you to focus on what Paul focuses on so often. If you want to grow in holy jealousy, look to the cross of Christ. Let that emblazon itself on your heart and mind because at the cross we see that God is so holy, so pure, so honorable, so righteous that he can't sit idly by when evil is destroying his creation. He must not allow anything to thwart his righteousness, so he judges sin. But he is also so loving and compassionate that he himself will undergo the judgment for sinners. Let that soak into you, and you will develop the same sort of holy jealousy that Paul has. So first, what did Paul feel? He felt holy jealousy, a blend of indignation and compassion. But secondly, what can we learn about what Paul sees? What does Paul see? Well, in short, he sees idols everywhere. And you're probably thinking, of course Paul saw idols everywhere. He was in ancient Athens, and Greece had all sorts of idols around. One ancient satirist said that it was easier to find a god in the streets than it was to find a man. And statistically speaking, that was true. There were about 10,000 people in Athens and about 30,000 statues of the gods. So, of course, Paul saw idols, but we're not nearly as primitive as the ancient Greeks. Are we really? I'm convinced that if the Apostle Paul were to, to come here to America today, he would say the exact same thing that he says in verse 22. He'd say, O people of the United States, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. Now, how can I possibly say that when institutional religion has been on the decline for years? Well, 
even though we may not have nearly as many statues or images that explicitly honor some deity, we absolutely have just as many idols as ancient Athens. In fact, every culture has idols because idols are more than just marble or stone. Idols are also found in the human heart. You see, an idol is simply a God substitute. Idolatry is simply taking anything, often a a very good thing, and making it an ultimate thing. Or to put it another way, an idol is that which you fear losing the most. So it's not a question of, of if a particular culture or if somebody has idols, but rather what idols are there in that particular culture. You see, the world is, is teeming with idols because everyone, everywhere, is worshiping something. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We can't not worship. We're constantly pouring ourselves out for something that we hold in the highest regard. So Paul saw idols, but it was not merely with his physical eyes. You see, the word for to see here means something more than just looking at. It was to, to perceive or to understand. Paul saw idols everywhere because he was diagnosing the condition of the people around him. He had spiritual wisdom. You see, what Paul felt and what he saw were actually mutually reinforcing. The more he saw the abundant idolatry around him, the more he burned with a holy jealousy for God. And the more that he burned with a holy jealousy for God, the more he saw idolatry underneath everything. See, when you become a Christian, you no longer look to your career or money or achievements to find your identity or purpose because Jesus has become more precious to you than anything else. And what happens is all of a sudden you start to begin to see idols everywhere. You can't help but notice at work those who are looking to their job performance or maybe their retirement portfolio or their next vacation to satisfy the longings of their heart. Now all of a sudden you see friends who are making idols out of some romantic relationship or perhaps even idols out of their own children. So what do you and I, what do we learn from what Paul sees in Athens? We learn this, everyone, everyone is religious in their heart of hearts. Everyone worships. What is ultimately wrong with us and our world is not fundamentally a lack of education or the wrong person in office or an imbalance of power, but rather the root problem is fundamentally a spiritual problem. It's putting anything in the place that God alone deserves. It's idolatry. When we begin to see that, we can effectively diagnose and begin to actually love and care for the people around us rather than just treating the symptom. What Paul feels, what Paul sees. Lastly, what does Paul do? In short, he, because he's filled with holy jealousy and he has spiritual discernment, he draws near to those who are lost and he brings the gospel to bear on the lives of those around him. There's so much that we can say about what Paul did here, but let me just point out two things, where he went and and what he said. It was normally Paul's custom, every new city that he went to, to go into the synagogues first. And he does that here in Athens, but he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 17. It says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Paul's faith takes him into the marketplace. This has so much to say to us. You see, although Rome had become the the power capital in Paul's day, Athens was still the intellectual and cultural capital of his day. If Rome was like Washington, D.C., then Athens was like Paris, New York, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Oxford, England, all wrapped up into one. And so here in the the cultural capital of the world, Paul plunges into the marketplace because he knows that the gospel impacts every area of life. Paul knows that the truth of the gospel affects everything that we do. So he he goes into the marketplace. Now the marketplace is something completely different than what we would think of a marketplace today. It's quite different than uh, those people down a block away on Market Street who are shopping right now. The market, or the agora as it was called, uh, was where so much of life happened. One commentator has said that in the marketplace of Athens, you could find temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. Who all was in the marketplace? Everyone was in the marketplace. You would see town officials and judges deliberating. You'd you'd see artists creating. You'd, You'd hear businessmen making deals. In an age without Twitter or newspapers, uh, the Agora was where you would go to to hear the news, said by heralds. In an age without scholarly journals, this is where intellectuals would go to have debates in person. And so Paul went into the marketplace because he knew that the living God was Lord even over the marketplace and that the truth of the gospel had something to say to all of life. But I want you to notice also what he says. Notice he doesn't just show up in the marketplace and get up on a box and start preaching. Now he's going to get to preaching later on. He's going to be taken to Mars Hill and give a a sermon there. But, But look at what it says he does first in the marketplace. He reasoned with them day by day. And what's that mean? What is he doing? Well, he's following the the Socratic method. That involved first seeking to understand your opponent's view, not from your own vantage point, but from their vantage point. Paul carefully observed and and he listened, he studied the Athenians and their culture. He he read their books, so much so that in his sermon, he's actually going to quote back to them some of their own teachings to make his own point. My friends, when when you're engaging with non-Christians today, how well do you actually know what they believe? Can you articulate their point of view in a way that they would actually affirm? Paul certainly did that. The next thing was to critique the view in question by showing its own inconsistencies on its own terms. And finally, after critiquing the view on its own terms, the debater would offer a better solution, an alternative where the other has failed. That's, that's what Paul's doing when he's reasoning. That's, that's how he engaged in the marketplace. But what was the substance of his message? What did he actually say? Well, in verse 18, it says, it sums up his message just with these words, that he spoke of Jesus and the resurrection. And given who his audience was, we can piece together why his message centered on the resurrection. It says that there were Epicureans and Stoic philosophers who were debating him. These were the two main philosophical schools in Athens at the time. 
And uh, the Stoics, the Epicureans, they often disagreed just about everything with one another, but they did hold one thing in common. They both believed that when you die, that was it. Death was the end. There was no more personal consciousness after death. And while they agreed on that front, they offered radically different explanations or responses for what to do in light of that reality. The Stoics said, essentially, life is what it is. It's all up to fate. The only thing you can do is control how you to respond with what comes your way. So keep a stiff upper lip. Press on and, and do your duty, they'd say. Live a, a good life that contributes to society. At the risk of, of oversimplifying, they were the conservatives of the day. They focused on duty and, and, and a moral life. The Epicureans, on the other hand, responded to the inevitability of death by saying, well, you only go around once, so grab all the gusto that you can. Do all you can to avoid suffering. Focus on the things that really make you happy. In a word, they were the progressives. They focused on individual freedom and personal happiness. And it ought to be said that, that down to even our own day, for over 2,000 years, these are essentially the same sort of responses that secular uh, world has, has given towards death. So what does Paul, how does he engage these ideas? Well, he focuses on the resurrection. How does the resurrection challenge both the Stoics on the one hand and the Epicureans on the other? Well, the Stoics, they said live a moral life, but they had no basis for their morality. And neither actually do atheists today. Both modern atheists and ancient Stoics believe that death was the end and the world uh, was all just a product of chance. I love the, the illustration that Tim Keller's given in many of his sermons. He says, imagine that you're on the Titanic and you realize the ship's going down. You can hear the shouts on board and the panic that's setting in over the people as they, they rush to get into the lifeboats. And eventually, all the lifeboats are taken, you're left on the deck, and you realize this is it. And he said, now imagine that somebody leans over next to you and puts something in your side and says, stick them up, give me your wallet. And what would you, what would you do? Well, you'd give them your wallet and you'd think, what's the point? What, we're going to die anyways. Why, what are you doing? You see, if there is no life after death, then we are all like those on the deck of the Titanic going down. And what does it matter if we go down hugging or mugging? That's the point of the Stoics, or that Paul was trying to show the Stoics. We know deep down that stealing is wrong. We, we know that there is got to be some source of our morality outside of ourselves. So Paul says we know that in our heart of hearts there is a God, and that death isn't the end, and he set eternity in the heart of man, and that one day he's going to judge the world, and the resurrection is the proof of that. Well, the Epicureans, they had their own set of issues. If death was the end, then you have to do a, a, a whole lot of work to keep that reality out of your mind if you're going to enjoy anything. You have to essentially deny your mortality. Albert Camus once gave the illustration. That he asked, what, what do you enjoy doing the most? What gives you the most happiness? Maybe it's listening to your favorite album or going on to play golf or walking on the beach. And Camus said, all right, I want you to take an hour 
I'm going to give you all the resources, all the money to do whatever you want to do for an hour. But after that hour's over, your life's over. Now, what would you say? Chances are you'd respond with, somehow I I don't think I'm going to enjoy my hour all that much. But Camus said, don't you realize life is just like that? If this life is all there is, then in order to get any pleasure out of life, then you have to work really hard to deny your mortality, to keep the thought of death out of your mind. And that was the problem with the Epicurean way of life and view. Ernest Becker, he's not a Christian, but he's written a really insightful book called The Denial of Death. And in it, he argues that the real reason that we're all so wildly anxious today is deep down we know death is coming but we are doing our best not to think about it. We long for permanence. We want to last. We want our lives to to mean something. That's the ultimate reason behind all that we do, all of our dieting or exercise, all our clothes, all all the desire that we have to leave behind, a legacy. We We want to last. But if death is the end, we know deep down none of it matters. It will all fade away. And that's the real reason we're all so anxious deep down. So Paul points the Epicureans to the resurrection. The resurrection shows that death isn't the end, that the reason you and I long for permanence is that we're, we're made in God's image and we're made for eternal life with Him. We want it to be true, and Paul says it is true. It's not just some fairy story. In fact, he says elsewhere that if it is just a fairy story, if it's not true, then Christianity is absolutely worthless. It has no value, but it's true. God really did become a man. He really died on the cross for the sins of the world. He really rose again, and death isn't the end. And you know what that means? It means that you and I can actually face death. We don't have to be afraid. This is what Christians through the ages, it it baffled everyone else because they could endure suffering, they could face death like nobody else. God has done something about all the pain and suffering in the world. We don't need to shrug it off like the Stoics, and we don't need to numb it like the Epicureans. We can face all the pain and suffering and death in this world, and we can actually grieve it. But we can grieve as those who actually have hope. Because the resurrection means, in the end, nothing that really matters will ever be lost. And that's the only way we can actually enjoy the things here and now because we know that they're just the dim shadows of the glory that's to come. You see, Paul pointed to the fact, the historicity of the resurrection and how the resurrection delivers what we all long for in our heart of hearts, what we know in our gut to be true about life. And look how people responded. They mocked him. They called him a babbler, which was a term for an intellectual lightweight. Down at the end of the the passage, more people mocked him in verse 32. And if you're here today and you don't believe in, in the resurrection of Jesus, please, please don't tell me that it's because we are so much more smarter than the ancient people in the first world, the first century. Look at the way people responded. They people have always been shocked at the resurrection. They've always been skeptical of it. It was just as absurd then as it is today. But notice it's not the only reaction. There were also others who were curious. They wanted to hear more. And lastly, there were some who became convinced. 
And they believed, and they joined with Paul. These, my friends, have always been the sort of reactions to the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection. So, if you're a Christian, don't be dismayed when you're mocked. And if you're here and you don't believe in the resurrection, know know that we're really glad that you're here. I'm delighted that you've put up with what I've had to say. But consider the evidence of the resurrection. Consider the facts behind it. Question the basis of your own morality and the sincerity of, of trying to seek pleasure when this world is all that there is. Go ahead, even critique Christianity, but do so on the basis of its own claims. My friends, it's, it's all or nothing with the resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't happen, then, then it's worthless. But if, if it did happen, that changes everything. It changes everything. May we, like Paul, have a heart for God's glory and a compassion for the people around us. May we plunge ourselves into our own marketplaces, and may we do our best to show people the validity and the hope of the resurrection. Amen.